All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve, and I'm the lead pastor. Uh, Merry Christmas. I hope you guys are uh, looking forward to uh, spending time with family, and I hope you're prepared to spend time with that one weird relative. Every family's got one. If you don't know who it is, you know what they say. So, I hope you're prepared. Um, We are continuing our sermon series this morning called The Promise. We have been looking through uh, through the Old Testament at the covenants of promise to to help us get ready. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, and uh, we're going to be going over to 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's page 259 in one of our Bibles. Um, So go ahead and grab one of our Bibles if you don't have one, and uh, flip over there. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible as our gift to you. We would love... Uh, for that to be uh, able to equip you to continue to read and dig into the Word. Um, so, you guys, Merry Christmas, for real. Merry Christmas and, and, and Merry Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is the peak of the Advent season, right? Advent is, is a word that means coming or arrival. And, and during the Advent season, we look back to the first Advent, to the first coming of Christ, to renew our joy, and we look forward to the second Advent of Christ, the second coming, uh, to increase our longing. And that really is the goal. That's been our goal through this whole sermon series, is, is I want to produce this kind of, this tension of joy and yearning, right? So that we look back with deep joy and gratitude, And we look forward with discomfort. There should be a piece of us that is restless and yearning for the second advent, the coming of Christ. And we've been doing this by tracing the golden thread of God's promise through the ugly tapestry of human history. God made a promise in the garden uh, right in the middle of the rebellion. We looked at that three weeks ago where where Adam and Eve rebel against God. And and right in the middle of the rebellion, before the dust had even settled, God gave them a promise and said, I will send a son of the woman who will be the hero of mankind. There's one coming who will undo what has just been done. One coming who who will heal what has just been hurt and fix what has just been broken and even though his, bru- his, his heel will be bruised, he will crush the head of your enemy. He will destroy what has just been destroyed. A hero is coming because you broke shalom with me. Right? We talked about the, the radical impact of the sin bomb that went off in Genesis chapter 3 when they broke shalom with God. Right? Shalom is the Hebrew word that means peace, but it means way more than lack of conflict. It means the flourishing and the fullness of life. And they broke shalom with God by rebelling against God and saying, we will be like God. We will be equal to you, not dependent on you. And so they lost their peace with God. And as a result, they lost shalom in every other relationship. They lost shalom with themselves. They had the birth of shame, the sudden birth of that inner critic that is continually either puffing them up or tearing them down, but is continually working to destroy them, right? They had the birth of of loss of, of shalom in themselves, loss of shalom between one another. No longer living in community, now living in competition. No longer living in love for the good of others, living in selfishness, keeping what I have and trying to get more. And they lost shalom with the created order. The earth that was meant to yield to the hand of the steward fruitfully and joyfully now rises up against the hand of the steward. And and, and we have hurricanes and tornadoes and cancer and all kinds of brokenness coming because we have lost shalom with the rest of creation. God promised 
right there in the midst of the rebellion, I will send a hero who will restore what has been lost. Now, we followed that promise, right? That promise came through Adam's son, Seth, and uh, all the way down to Noah. We looked at that two weeks ago, and and there was a a profound promise to Noah with a a foreshadowing of Jesus. And and then Noah's son, Shem, uh, became the line of promise all the way down to Abraham. And we looked at that last week with the profound promise to Abraham that there would be a son who would bless the entire world and and, and would uh, eventually take us home. Right, Bring us to the promised land of where our yearnings are fulfilled, our longings are fulfilled. Right, Not just a, a piece of property next to the Mediterranean Sea, but a restored world, uh, once again thriving in the shalom of God. And today we're going to follow that line all the way down to a guy named David. Now, as we look at the Christmas story in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each kind of tell the Christmas story differently. Um, Matthew and, and Luke both give a detailed account of the birth of Christ and both give a genealogy of Christ. And coming out of this series, I think you're starting to see the importance of these genealogies, right? They, they trace the line of promise. And Matthew begins his gospel in Matthew 1.1 by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The reason he said that is because there's a critical promise, not just to Abraham, but to David. If you were here last week, you, you heard why Abraham's name is here. Now, King David was given a promise as well, and, and it is the reason that we call Jesus the child king. So I want to give you a little bit of context before I read our passage, so that as we read it, you'll understand a little bit better what we, what we have going on here. We left off last week with the line of promise coming out of Abraham, right? Abraham was promised a son, and, and God waited until it was physically impossible, and then he gave uh, Sarah the ability to conceive and give birth to a child named Isaac. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob was renamed Israel, and Israel became the father of the 12 tribes, the 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was named Levi, and he became the line of, of the Levites. And, and one of the... Uh, Levites, right? Levi begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and eventually so-and-so begot a guy named Moses. And I need to mention him because he's a hugely important figure in biblical history. And in fact, God made a covenant with him too. That covenant was called, sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, in the same way the one we're, today we're going to be talking about is the Davidic Covenant. Sometimes it's called the Law. Sometimes it's just called the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. That may sound familiar because the whole first half of your Bible is named after it, right? It's pretty important. Um, It is where we get our Ten Commandments. It's part of the Mosaic Covenant, right? And the Ten Commandments are really just the preface. When you read through the Old Testament, there are around 613 different commandments. The Ten are are just the representation of it, right? And those laws uh, led Israel into... into, control their dress and their food and, and their behavior and their, their weekly rhythms. It was, it was thorough. And, and it comes out of the law. We also get the tabernacle, the traveling tent where Israel met and, and worshiped God. It's, it's from the Mosaic law. We get the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where Israel would draw near to God through sacrifices. It's through the law that we get the Ark of the Covenant. That box that traveled around that represented the presence of God and inside were the tablets of of, of the Ten Commandments and and Aaron's budding rod and, and, and things that represented the presence and blessing of God. The law made Israel unique. They were the only people on the face of the earth 
living under the law, and, and, and it really made them unique. It made them weird, okay, because, because it literally controlled how they dressed, what they ate, where they went, how they spoke. Every part of their, their life was, was led by this law. Now, here's the thing with the law, and the reason that we're not going to go into it a lot right now is, is that it's not a covenant of promise, Right, we're going to deal with this, actually. We're, I'm going to keep going in this series, and we're going to talk about how the law fits in, because I think it's fascinating and very, very important. Um, but, the, but the covenant of laws is, is not a covenant of promise. Right? With Abraham, God showed up and said, hey, I'm going to bless you. That's my promise. Right? It doesn't matter whether you want it or not, or whether you're going to receive it or not, or what you do or don't do. I'm going to bless you. Right? It's a covenant of promise. God shows up to Moses and, and says, go to the people and say, hey, y'all, you want to have a deal? Right? If I do this, you'll be blessed, and, and if you break this, then you'll be cursed. You want to do this? And they're like, yeah! And, and, and it's a fundamentally different kind of covenant. So this morning, I want to stay focused on the covenants of promise that led to the promised hero. So, so Moses, an incredibly important figure, um, led Israel out of Egypt after they had been enslaved for 400 years. You guys probably know the story. They took them across the Red Sea and, and through the wilderness and all the way to the Promised Land. Eventually, a guy named Joshua led them into uh, the Promised Land, right? The land promised by the Abrahamic Covenant, that strip of land along the side of the Mediterranean Sea. And, and, and they took possession of that land, and, and they divided it up among the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and, and they went through a season where they were, they were ruled by a series of judges. And these judges would rise up and defeat Israel's enemies and rule for a little while. But, but it was really ugly time in Israel's history because everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. <laughs> when you read through the book of Judges, that's the constant phrase. They just kept walking away from God. And, and they kept pleading and saying, all right, God, if you just send us a king, it'll fix our problem. Can we just have a king? And God's finally like, all right, you can have a king. And so they chose a guy named Saul because Saul was like a man's man, right? He was the kind of guy you looked at and you're like, if anybody could be a king, it'd be him. He was good looking. He was tall. He had broad shoulders. He spoke well. He had authority and he was a horrible king. Saul continually uh, was disloyal to God, was unfaithful to, to his covenant. And while he was ruling, there was a little boy tending sheep out in the wilderness, and his name was David. And David was born of the line of Judah. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. And, and, and Nathan the prophet came to him in the wilderness. And, um, and God said, you're going to be king. And, uh, and so he, you know, he's just a kid. He's just a kid. And, and Israel's at war with the Philistines, and, and you guys probably know this story. Um, uh, you know, he goes to bring lunch to his brothers who are at war with the Philistines, and, the Phil- and, and they're all hiding like in the, behind the bushes, you know. And he's like, what are you guys hiding for? We're the servants of the Most High God. And they're like, yeah, but they got a really big warrior named Goliath. And, and David's like, yeah, but I have faith in God, not faith in my strength. And so he takes his little rock and his sling and nails the dude in the head and Cuts off, cuts off his head, and he becomes a hero, right? He kills, he kills the hero of the Philistines, and, and Saul brings him into his army, and, and, and David becomes this very notable warrior to the point where Saul actually becomes defensive and, and scared of him. Uh, and so he tries to kill him, right? And, and, and David goes into the season of hiding and running, and, and, he, and he refuses to fight against Saul because Saul is God's anointed king. And he's like, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. Even though he knows God's already set him apart to be king, he will not raise his hand against Saul because he will honor the anointed uh, king of Israel. So God ends up taking Saul out in a battle. Saul and Jonathan, his son, both die. Uh, David is grieved, but then he is publicly recognized 
as king. And, and then he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. So that's just preceding our passage. He has, he has brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, uh, and it's a season of peace. It's a season of flourishing. And, um, and, and, and so he decides he wants to build God a house because he has a house, a house that he's built out of cedar, and he loves his house, and he's like, well, I should build God a house. If I have a house, God should have a house. God should have a temple, a permanent structure. So he determines that, that um, because his kingdom is at peace and he is able, he's going to build God a temple. Nathan at first says that's a great idea. God says not really, and that's where we're going to pick up. So let's take a look at 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I, was, since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so, so David looks at his palace, right? This incredible house he's built from cedar, and, and, and he decides that, that God needs one too. And, and at first, Nathan thinks this is a, a great idea, but God appears to him that night and says, not really, right? David is not going to build me a house. I've never asked for one. I don't really need one. Um, so I'll tell you what. You tell David, I don't want you to build me a house, because I'm going to build you a house. There's a play here on the Hebrew word for house because the Hebrew word can, be mo- can, can mean both the physical structure of a home, but it can also mean the lineage 
of that home, right? So when we talk about like the house of David, we're not talking about his physical house. We're talking about his children and his children's children and his children's children's children. We're talking about the generations of David. He's saying, I am going to give you a never-ending, glorious lineage. I will establish for you a house that will never be torn down. A name that will never be brought low. I will establish your lineage. Take a look at verses 11 and 12, starting in the middle of 11. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now remember, when we're talking about um, uh, prophecy, because this is a prophetic announcement from God, when we're talking about prophecy, it's like that mountain range that we described last week, right? When you look at a mountain range from a distance, it looks like a, a single line of peaks, right? But, but as you approach it and climb the first mountain, you realize that it's actually a series of mountains, right? There are valleys in between them. And biblical prophecy works very much like this. There is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, right? So he is speaking in, in the immediate sense of David's son Solomon. Right? Solomon would be uh, the king that would be blessed as, as David's heir. Right? So when we read verse 13, He shall build a house for my name. It is specifically talking about Solomon. Solomon built the temple for God. The temple that God didn't allow David to build. He gave instructions to Solomon to build. And, and Solomon's temple became the first physical, permanent physical structure um, for, for worship of God. And in fact, God blessed his reign. Solomon had a reign of unsurpassed peace and prosperity and wealth. Solomon became known throughout the entire world for his wisdom, for his wealth, for the prosperity of his land. It was an incredible season. But it didn't last. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acted foolishly. And in his foolishness, caused a rebellion to rise up against him and and the nation of Israel split into two you had the nation of Israel to the north the 10 tribes that that were read, led by a guy named Jeroboam and then uh, uh, Rehoboam led Israel and it was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin that stayed in Jerusalem so the kingdom divided uh, it didn't stay unified and and eventually they were both carried off into captivity at different stages so so This is where we need to remember the nature of prophecy, right? God wasn't promising that Solomon would reign forever. God wasn't promising even that the nation of Israel would reign in the nation, that they would have that piece of real estate right next to the Mediterranean Sea. That that wasn't the point. The point was that there was a greater son and a greater fulfillment, right? That there was going to be a kingdom that would never fail. Right? There's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Right? When you look at the end of verse 13, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. It is true that a descendant and a son of David will sit on the throne forever. But it wasn't Solomon. It was Jesus. Jesus was the true and better Solomon. Right? So it was very true, just not the way they expected 
they thought God was talking about a physical kingdom in a way that they understood and knew like they had. And God was saying, man, I'm going to give you so much, something so much better. Right? You're, you're thinking about this, this physical kingdom and a physical place that is so limited in scope and blessing. And I'm going to give you something that fulfills the promise but exceeds it. I'm going to give you something so much better. God would send a son that was wiser than Solomon, better than Solomon, that would bring a reign of prosperity that was more full than Solomon and a throne who, whose throne would be eternal. Verse 14a is profoundly prophetic. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. This was true of Solomon. Solomon was a son of God, but it even, is even that much more true of Jesus, the very son of God. Right? And then he goes on in 14b, I will discipline him. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of men. This was true of Solomon. Solomon, while a very prosperous king and a good king, uh, was a wayward king. And in his prosperity and in his peace, uh, he got a little weird. He got bored. Uh, so he had to kind of create things to keep him distracted. And those things weren't always good. Uh, he, he experimented in absolutely anything you could experiment in uh, to ultimately try to figure out if there was any fulfillment in life. And, and the book of Ecclesiastes is, is his expression of what he discovered, which was it's all vanity. Vanity of vanities. You cannot find shalom outside of the presence and the blessing of God. Right? And so Solomon needed to be disciplined. The true and better son, Jesus The true and better son never committed iniquity. And yet he was struck with rods and he received stripes. He was both whipped and hit. Not because of his iniquity, but ours. The true and better son didn't need to be disciplined, but he was. Because he was our substitute and he took our place. He was the true and better Solomon. Take a look at verses 15 and 16. But my steadfast love... Remember, anytime you see that phrase, it's that said love, that covenant love, that never-ending love that rests in the commitment of God. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I had somebody tell me once that... Um, that, that David's throne, I was young in my Christian life, and I remember this guy telling me that David's throne had miraculously be take, been taken from the face of the earth and hidden away in heaven somewhere, and that God was going to bring it back someday because it said da- that, that David's son would sit on his throne forever. Um, that's a little silly. That's not what it means. Uh, any more than when it says your house is going to last forever, that he, he took the house plank by plank away. This is a reference to his authority and his reign. That there was going to be a son who would sit on a throne and when his kingdom had been established, his reign would be eternal and unchallenged. The far fulfillment of the prophecy was that Jesus, the son of David, would be the true king. And his kingdom would be unshakable. And his reign would be forever. This is why it's so important, you guys, that Jesus was the son of David and the son of Abraham. Because he was the fulfillment of both of those promises. And in fact, Son of David is one of the most used titles in the Gospels for Jesus. When he's, when he's traveling around, people will be like, oh, Son of David. And often when they're using it, they're coming with a request. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, will you heal this person I love? Son of David, why do they use that title in those cases? 
because they recognize he has an authority to do something no one else can do. He has an authority that exceeds the very limits of the natural order. He can give mercy where they can expect none. He can give healing where none can be expected. The king, the true son of David, has authority even over the natural course of the world. And they recognize that as the son of David, he had that authority running in his veins. This time of year, you'll, you'll hear this a lot, right? For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Every time I hear that line, I hear it in, in Linus's voice. Um, it's a great version. It's a great version. Um, but I want us to take a look at the full passage. This, that quote actually comes from Isaiah chapter 9. And I'm going to put it up on the screen. And we're going to do something a little bit different this morning as we enter into kind of the Advent season. I want you to read this out loud with me. Okay? And so I'm going to read it. I want you to read it along with me. You ready? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love that last line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I will keep my promise. I have committed myself. I have given my word. And my word is covenant. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You guys, I think, um, I don't know, in a representative democracy in which we live, um, the whole idea of a king seems foreign to us in some ways. It's not our experience. And and even when we look like at England where there's a, a queen, in many ways she's just a figurehead. Um, with no true authority. And so I think maybe we miss a little bit of the power of what's being said here. What God is saying is that we need a centralized figure of authority who will bring everything back in line. A centralized person of authority who, who will lead sacrificially who will lead in love, who will lead for the blessing of those that he leads, that we might find flourishing. We need a king to reestablish peace. And Jesus is the king of Shalom, the true son of David. In the same way David was an unknown kid tending sheep out in the field, completely unnoticed and overlooked, even though he was king. Jesus was born in a stable, surrounded by sheep, completely unnoticed and overlooked, unknown and disregarded, and yet he was the greatest king ever born with an authority unsurpassable. The everlasting kingdom of peace in his hand. I mean, just, you guys just think for a sec. Do you want wrong things set right? 
Is there a brokenness in this world, a brokenness in your life, a brokenness that you long to see set right? Whether it is a a, a brokenness in relationship that, that you are powerless to heal, or a brokenness in culture like systemic racism or, or, or systemic and abusive poverty or, or whatever it might be that you are powerless to fix and you know that mankind's best solutions will always fall short of actually curing. Does your heart break? Knowing that this morning, as we gather in worship, there are people suffering and dying all around the world. Is there a brokenness that breaks your heart? Have you seen the world in such a way that you yearn for the reestablishment of shalom? Is there, is there, is there an affliction that you want healed or, or an abuse you want protection from? Do you long for the abuse of wicked men to be cut short? Do you long for a kingdom of flourishing and fullness to be reestablished? where you will know your place, where you will be home. It will be yours and you will belong to it. It will be a community of people that belongs and flourishes together, working out the fullness of their creative endeavors, productive and and using their energies, but not to destroy and not to selfishly build their own kingdoms in competition with one another but together building a beautiful culture to the glory of God and to the good of man. I think many of us have grown cynical. We don't believe it can happen. We've grown callous to the suffering around us because it is overwhelming. We have grown cold to the yearning of all creation for the reestablishment of Shalom. Because the sorrow is so great, it will swallow us whole. And the pain is so intense, it will destroy us. Do you yearn for the reestablishment of the kingdom of God? Rejoice. Because the king has come. We look back with gratitude at the advent of the king the coming of the true son of David. But this promise, as we look back and take joy in the child king, should set us longing as we look forward to the second advent, the return of the king, to bring in the kingdom of righteousness and the flourishing of shalom. God wove some pretty cool layers into this promise in in 2 Samuel 7 that I think just enrich our understanding. Solomon. So God promised David, your son will build me a house, right? And Solomon built that house, right? Solomon built the temple. But do you realize that even in that, that was simply a foreshadowing of the greater son building the greater temple? Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that the son of God, the son of David rose again from the dead that he might build a new temple, not made of stones, but made up of all the believers, every tribe, every nation, every tongue from all time, with himself being the chief cornerstone, that we might become a living habitation for the living God. 
We're the temple that Jesus built. Not a building. We are the church, the ecclesia, the called out people of God. When you believe in Jesus, you are actually being built into the living habitation of God. We don't go to church. We are the church. We don't need to go visit a temple because God resides in us, the living temple. And we will forever be the place of habitation for God. In the same way Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening and and, and experienced unreserved and unrestricted access and fellowship with God, God is recreating a new humanity that will live with the same intimacy, pouring out their worship with no reservation, no barriers, and nothing between, because we ourselves will be the living temple of God, the true and better temple. Hmm. And then David said to David, I want to build you a house. God, your son, will be the true and better temple builder, the house made without hands over which Jesus is the true and better king. All right, to close out, this theme of Jesus being the son of David carries through all the way to the final chapters of the Bible. In fact, I'd like you to flip over to Revelation chapter 5. So in your Bibles, I would like you to flip over to Revelation chapter 5. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's page 1030. 1030. And as we meditate on this this morning, as we, at the peak of the Advent season, as we prepare our hearts for tomorrow, man, I don't know of any better way for us to renew our hope than to fill our vision with our hero. Revelation chapter 5. To give you the context, John has, this is the Apostle John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, and, and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and, and, and he's in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and God gives him this incredible vision where he actually transports him, in a sense, into the very presence of God. And, and, and in, in Revelation 5, he is, he's surrounded, he's standing before the throne on which sits God, and he's surrounded by a bunch of weirdness. Um, elders and animals and creatures and angels and they're all talking and singing. It's very Narnia-esque um, and awesome because I love Narnia. Um, but but it's, a, it's, a, it's a vision of, of, of something we've never seen and can't experience. In some ways, I think it's just described in a way that we can visualize it and try to enter into it. But, but there's a conflict in, in Revelation 5. There's a conflict. God has in his right hand, a scroll. And, and I'm going to explain a little bit to you so you can appreciate it as we read it. He has a scroll in his hand that's written on, on the front and the back. And, and nobody really knows what the scroll is. There's a lot of debate, a lot of controversy. And if you know exactly what it is, you don't. Um, but, but some people say it's a will, that it's actually the, the fulfillment of the covenant blessings. Others say it's the, the actual book of life in which are written all the names uh, of the redeemed, those that Christ has redeemed and are bringing into his new kingdom. Um, either way, this book contains the immeasurable, measurable blessing of the full redemption and restoration of God. Inside this book is the fulfillment of all the promises. But it's sealed with seven seals. And in the ancient world, a seal was a sign of protection. When a king wrote a document, he would drip wax onto the parchment to close it, and then he would take a signet ring and press it into it. 
and nobody who didn't have the authority of that king could open that, open that seal. So you had to have an authority equal to the king to break the seal. And on this parchment are seven. Seven is the number of perfection, and it's used throughout the book of Revelation to show that it's absolutely complete. It is perfectly protected. There are seven seals on this book of blessing. So let's begin in in verse 1 as I read through this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Pause for a minute. I began to weep loudly. Imagine that close is the fulfillment of every longing. The blessing that will set all things right. The authority that will wipe away every tear, that will destroy every form of injustice, who will reestablish righteousness on the earth, the thriving and the fullness of life. It is the blessing of shalom itself. Life as it was intended to be. And nobody has the authority to break the seals. It's a blessing, tantalizingly close, but impossible to take hold of. And John is broken because he sees what has been promised and he feels the despair of not being able to take hold of it. It is a yearning in his soul that breaks him. Take a look again, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah The tribe of Judah is the father of David. This is the Davidic line, the Davidic covenant being fulfilled. And and in this case, he's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah because it is the king in his power. It is the king exercising his authority, the line of the tribe, the root of David. I love that. In other places, he's called the branch of David, the one who came out of David. In this case, he's the root of David. He's the one that actually created David. He's the one that started the line of promise and now is the fulfillment of the line of promise. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, you guys, I'm just going to read the rest of this, man. Just open your heart to what's going on here. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. This is the same one, the lion, right? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It means perfect power, perfect vision, right? Verse 7, And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the king for whom we long. And this is the kingdom for which you yearn. This is, this is the true king who will reign with a true flourishing and it will fill the world. Man, our hope isn't in this world. Our hope isn't in this kingdom. Our hope isn't in our country. Our hope isn't in politics. Our hope is in the king who will return to reestablish shalom to the created order. You guys, this is why he was born. That he might become the lamb of God and that in becoming the lamb of God, He might establish the authority to become the lion of the tribe of Judah. To set all things right. To God be the glory. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. I'm going to put some uh, some thoughts on the screen for reflection. And um, and then we're going to share communion. To celebrate our king who died. That we might be brought into his kingdom. But for now, let me, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a faithful God, a God of steadfast covenant love who never breaks your word. You promised that you would send a son who would be bruised, but in his bruising would crush the head of our enemy and destroy what we had undone and broken. You promised that 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 son would become a blessing to the entire world and would have the power to take us home. You promised that that son would be the king who would bring in a reign of righteousness and flourishing. Lord, we thank you for his coming and we yearn for his return. There is nothing good in this world that will not be made better in his return. There is nothing that we love here that we will not love more purely and more fully when he comes back. Lord, light us up with gratitude for the incredible humility of a God who would become man, that he might die in sinful mankind's place to deliver him back into the presence of God. And light us up with yearning as we look forward to the establishment of the kingdom where once again the shalom of God will rule our hearts and our relationships and justice will flourish. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.